Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon with Roman Krasnerik. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined by Ash Milton, Managing Editor. Hey, everyone. Roman Krasnerik is a public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society. His latest book is The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking, which will be published in the U.S. on November 3rd, 2020. It's already out in the U.K., his previous books have been published in more than 20 languages. Roman grew up in Sydney and Hong Kong and studied at the universities of Oxford, London, and Essex and gained a PhD in political sociology. He is a research fellow of the Long Now Foundation and a founder of the Empathy Museum. So welcome, Roman. I'm uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. We're joined by our live audience of Palladium members, this conversation will be recorded, rebroadcast on YouTube and as a podcast. To become a Palladium member and get invited to upcoming salons, please visit palladiummag.com slash subscribe. The plan is for Ash, Roman, and myself to have a discussion for about 45 minutes and then move to questions with our live audience. Be sure to use the Q&A function in Zoom to post your questions and upvote other people's questions. So let's get started. I'd like to focus mostly on the six ways to think long-term that you outlined in your book. They were deep time humility, legacy mindset, cathedral thinking, holistic forecasting, intergenerational justice, and transcendental goals. So let's start digging into this. Deep time refers to the fact that we're actually, we actually have eons of time in front of us as well as behind us, and that humanity has existed for only a tiny moment in the universe's life. So, why is remembering this important and how do we make it feel important, especially when there seems to be so many urgent crises uh, right in front of us in society? I think you're absolutely right to question deep time um, in lots of different ways, actually. It's a challenging concept, partly challenging because it's so hard to get our heads around. I have spent years looking at geological tables of the Jurassic and right. the Cretaceous and so on, and they make no impression on me. I mean, they do on right. my kids who, when they were little, they were mad about dinosaurs, but it just <laughs> never really shifts my worldview. So it's very hard to touch deep time. And I think another kind of problematic aspect of it is that some people think, well, even if you recognize that humankind is just an eye blink in the cosmic story, isn't that a reason to not care about the, the the human future, you know, this right. the universe is going to go on for billions of years. So why do my actions matter at all? But actually, I think when you talk to people who have delved into deep time, trying to who've tried to grasp their position in that longer universal story of humankind going to the past and to the future, I think where people tend to come out is that it gives them a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. for the future. When they see themselves as part of a great chain of life going far into the past and long into the future. I think what's particularly interesting about deep time is that it's such a new concept. It's really only been around right. for a couple of centuries, at least in Western culture. Mm -hmm. You know, until, say, the late 18th century, it was very common in Christian cultures to take the biblical view that the earth was just maybe 6,000 years old, started in 4004 BC, if you trace back all the biblical dates. And then along right. came the geologists, along came the evolutionary thinkers like Darwin and others who really gave the evidence that we can't explain the evolution of, of living things. We can't explain all those rock strata and fossils unless we recognize that the earth is, you know, millions, maybe billions of years old. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we developed that sense of big, 
deep time, you know, by the early 19th century, really, but it has struggled to win in the battle against the increasing speed of the industrial revolution and right. modern digital time. Right? In a way, the geologist's hammer of deep time has lost against the iPhone of digital time. Uh, right. It hasn't been strong enough, that concept. So I think it's really important that we try and connect with deep time. The real questions are how do we do so in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, we sort of have this interesting tension where society seems to be accelerating in a lot of ways, uh, at least on say like a hundred year time scale, we've, we've had a massive acceleration in human society and, and a, a compression of our time scale of, of the things that we're able to forecast and think about uh, at the same time as this sort of huge contextualization. We have, you know, billions of years behind us and trillions of years in front of us uh, potentially, right? Until kind of the heat death scenario. And yeah, so it's this really interesting question of, of yeah. contextualizing ourselves in that. Um, and interestingly, both trends, right? Bo both the awareness of deep geological time and the decreasing time horizon both come from the modern era. I think there's yeah. kind of an interesting contradiction yeah. there. Uh, both yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's this tension, right? And then I guess one way to think about it is we are at, uh, I think, an important crux moment of history. We've We've suddenly got all these new technologies, all these new, this, this new awareness, uh, self-awareness of the system, right? The, the sort of uh, evolving system of life on earth has suddenly reached self-awareness about its, you know, its time contextualization, about its nature and so on. And so it's this interesting crux moment. And that's maybe uh, part of how we can start to reconcile these things. Mm -hmm. I think you... if I could just add though, I, mean, I think we need to recognize that conceptions of deep time uh, even though they might be relatively new in Western culture, are familiar in non-Western right. uh, cultures. Um, in you know uh, Hindu sort of thinking yeah, of about the, the the age of the universe, billions of of years, and of course, you know, so many indigenous cultures have you know connections with a sense of deep time. The the Australian Aboriginal uh, indigenous idea of the dream time, you know. Uh, uh, who knows how long ago that was, but what it does do, particularly with indigenous cultures, I think is put them in a greater sort of sense of contact with the, the long cycles of nature, with the ecological choreography of the planet, getting back in touch with cycles of moon and seasons and sun and, and stars mm -hmm. uh, and carbon cycles, you know, those, yeah. those huge cycles. And that's where we've replaced those kind of cycles with other cycles that we care about, the fiscal cycle and the tax year and things like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. The clock you mentioned quite yeah. a bit in the book as well. Like for the cyclical aspect here, how prescriptive is that for you? Because in, in our era, even though we have this very long sense of time now, it does seem to still basically be a linear sense of time. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because we can talk a lot about deep time, but it is still wedded to a kind of a linear idea of the arrow of time going, you know, from the past through the present and into the future. Mm. It might be a very long future, but it's still linear. And I'm very much a believer that we can and should try and reconnect with cyclical notions of time. It's quite hard to do that in Western culture, though. In fact, I'm about to do a talk in a couple of days' time. Um, 
with uh, a movement in Bali and in Indonesia. Now, mm. the Balinese have a very different calendar to the Western one. Uh, they have something called the Pokowon calendar, which is a cyclical calendar of a series of wheels within wheels, like cycles of five, six, seven days, and so on. And it's all part of a lunar year. And there's some great books on this, in fact, by the anthropologist uh, Clifford Geertz, uh, wrote uh, about this a lot in the 1970s. And what he was writing about then was saying that in Bali, time is lived in kind of pulses. There are what he called empty days and full days. Right. Full day is when these various cycles in the calendar all overlap. And that's a day of a lot of ritual, you meet people and so on. And then the other days, the empty days are days where you kind of sit around and don't very, do very much at all. <laughs> um, but so life is in these kind of pulses. And I think for those of us who feel really caught in, you know, work deadlines, short-term cycles, that idea of full days and empty days, I think is a rather profound one that we can try and connect with. And it's, it's much more cyclical than linear. Well, I need to, another interesting kind of relation of cyclic time that I think our society has a little bit of a struggle with is the idea of the rise and fall of societies and, and that there is this bumpy, you know, maybe there's progress overall, but there is a bumpy progress and, and it's not guaranteed that we're sort of monotonically going upwards. And I think that's, that's often, you know, when you look at what people were talking about in the ancients and so on, when yeah. they're talking in about- In fact, the downward is inevitable, time, right? Right. They're talking about, you know, the rise and fall of civilizations. They're talking about mortality, which is, I think, something we're going to discuss as well mm -hmm. here. But, uh, you know, we have to think about mortality also on this level of, of particular societies. And, and that's not something we have been doing a lot of thinking about as society um, yeah. until recently. I do want to move us on to the next topic um, because there are six we want to cover here, but I just want to encourage the uh, audience, you know, take note, whatever uh, seems most interesting, we want to dive more into in the Q&A period. This will kind of be the, the, the quick sum of these six concepts. So intergenerational justice is also an important concept for you. And you discuss, Roman, in the book, how we effectively discount the lives of future generations uh, in quite radical ways sometimes, you know, 50 or 100 future lives being equivalent to one current life. This is a very present focused mentality. On the other hand, a lot of the examples that come up, seven generation thinking, for example, seem to come from smaller, more tribal societies. Do you think it's possible to make intergenerational thinking very deep and instinctual when we have the scale of society that we do today, right? Mega cities, global society, and so on. So on the one hand, I think that, you know, you can look to cultures, you know, for example, the Native American idea of seventh generation decision-making practice in Iroquois communities or Lakota communities and think, well, yes, that's all very good for those sort of societies. But does that kind of thinking work in Shanghai or Dubai or Miami, you know, in urban hyper-capitalist mm. individualistic culture? And I'm really fascinated, actually, by the way that those kinds of ideas are starting to spread around the world in places that you wouldn't expect them to be. So, for example, the idea of Iroquois idea of seventh generation decision making has directly influenced a new political movement in Japan called Future Design. And mm. Future Design, uh, which has been around for about five years in Japan, uh, aims to create new kinds of grassroots democratic decision making. So what they do is they invite 
local citizens to meetings where they discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live. But they typically divide people into two groups. Half of them are told that they are residents from the present day. And the other half are giving these almost ceremonial robes to wear, almost kimonos, and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative plans for their towns and cities, whether it's healthcare investment or climate change action or dealing with AI or responding to COVID in all sorts of areas. And this future design movement has now spread from small towns to major cities like Kyoto. It's starting to be used in businesses and in Japan's Ministry of Finance. So there you have an example of something inspired by uh, an indigenous culture, but which is absolutely brought to the forefront of dealing with the problems of modernity in mm -hmm. major urban settings. So I think there is the possibility of doing that kind of learning, but I think something that's also really fundamental here is to recognize that although we live in a very short-term culture and we're constantly clicking the buy now button, human beings have evolved as an intergenerational species. You know, most of us will probably know our grandparents and we might know grandchildren. In other words, we are embedded in at least five generations, a couple forwards and a couple backwards. Mm. Um, and this, it's from this kind of evolutionary aspect of who we are that we have developed in, a, in our, our neuroanatomy, a capacity to think for the long term. We have what I call a marshmallow brain and an acorn brain. The marshmallow brain focuses on instant rewards, immediate gratification. And we all know about that famous marshmallow test, psychology test in the 60s, where kids had the marshmallow put in front of them. And if they uh, could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. There've been lots of critiques of that test. For example, your socioeconomic status impacts how much you delay gratification. But the big critique is that we also have another part of our brain, what I call the acorn brain, which focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And human beings are really good at this compared to mm. most other creatures. Right. Right? Investment, not just consumption. Yeah, that's right. You know, mm. a, a chimpanzee might get a stick and, and strip off the leaves and use it to make a tool to poke into a termite hole. That's planning ahead, but they'll never make a dozen of them and put them aside for next week. That's what right. human beings do. That's yeah. why we right. save for our pensions and write song lists for our own funerals. That's how we built the Great Wall of China and voyaged into space. So we've got this kind of immense in a dimension of time that we can draw upon. What I find so, interesting about your focus on generations is that, you know, I think it'd be very easy to come up with very abstract moral principles, right? Like, of course, we should think about the future or the species. But the thing with abstract moral principles is that they're very out there, right? You, you, you can condition them through law. But with generations, right, everyone... You know, most people have children and basically everyone is around people who have children, right? They, they know it's very deeply and personally felt. And it seems like uh, the focus on generations um, is able to root that idea on a more instinctual level, right? Where it's easier to follow because it, it is one of the instincts we contend with when we're making decisions. We're not just having to train ourselves to obey a, a more abstract principle. Yeah, I love that. I love that future design movement idea of like ritualistically transforming ourselves into the future generations by you know putting on a robe or whatever and saying we're in 2060 as a way to transform our perspective. That's just such an interesting idea. 
Yeah, I think those kinds of rituals are really important, but I think it's also really important to think about the language, which, the language that we're using here, because, I mean, some people say, well, the problem with the concept, say, like intergenerational justice is that it feels too far away from me. It's, it's all about abstract moral principles. And I think that kind of language can work for some people. Um, but I think for others, what really works is exactly talking about generational connection on a much more personal level. And that's partly why I talk about the idea of being a good ancestor. You know, not right. my phrase. I stole it from the great immunologist Jonas Salk, who developed the yeah. first polio vaccine in the 50s, because being a good ancestor, well, that's about me. It's not about them, those people, hundreds or thousands of years in the future. It's about what I am going to do. And it's really about thinking about our legacies. And that's another one of the six right. aspects yeah. of long-term thinking. I talk yeah, well, about the idea of developing a legacy mindset about feeling that almost visceral connection to future generations. Right. So I, I, speaking of like how our society and the, the sort of the frames we use uh, affect our empathy for the future, the way we think about these things, uh, you, you particularly single out our selfish discounting methods as treating future generations as worth less than us. That discounting is sort of, it's defined within the framework of self-interested capital gains. Whereas, let's say, seven-generation thinking, for example, would inherently have to take responsibility for society overall. Beyond kind of what we've discussed already, what kind of institutional alternatives to financial self-interest in particular do you think could naturally create this kind of wider horizon in society? So discounting is really important because that's how, of course, governments and a lot of businesses are making long-term investment decisions. You know, does a government right. invest in renewable energy? And when you do the mathematics of discounting, which as anyone who studies economics knows, is all part of cost-benefit analysis, the way it tends to work, it's a bit like the further and further somebody is away from you when you're looking at them, the smaller and smaller they get. Well, in discounting, right. the further and further they are away from you in time, the less uh, and less um, weight we put on their welfare. And what it means is that when it comes to long-term investment decisions by governments, for example, any project which has benefits that might accrue, say, 50 or 60 years ahead, those benefits aren't included in the calculation because it's all front-weighted towards the present. And I consider that to be a form of gross intergenerational injustice, you know, right. discounting, because what right have we to diminish the value of the lives yeah. of future people? And so there's a question there, well, what do we do about that? Well, on one level, of course, we change the discount rates, right? I mean, especially when it comes to things around ecological risk. The economists say, well, discounting is justified because future people will have more money or technology to deal with their problems. Well, no amount of money in your pocket is going to reverse the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, right? So I think there are real important realms where discounting is not justifiable. But then there are larger questions about incentives. How do we incentivize people to think for the longer term. You find, you know, progressive businesses around that, you know, for example, the, the, the consumer goods company Unilever, when their CEO, ex-CEO Paul Polman came in about 11 years ago, on the first day he took over, he abolished quarterly reporting, right? So he's trying to remove those short-term incentive structures. Right. But the yeah. problem was that his gigantic company was still owned by shareholders who had short-term vision. So he was constantly trying to battle against um, mergers uh, or, or acquisition uh, threats to his company by you know, Kraft Heinz wanting to take over and things like that. But something that I think is really important here about how we motivate people 
is to recognize, I guess, some of the behavioral psychology of long-term thinking. So just to give you an example, um, in the UK, when people write a will, around 6% of people tend to leave a be charitable bequest. In other words, it's a leaving a gift for future generations. It could be to people or planet, uh, you know, an environmental organization or a heart foundation or something like that. So that's 6%. But if you simply ask people, would you like to leave a charitable bequest in your will, the number goes from 6% to 12%. And then if you go a little bit further and say, a lot of people like to leave a charitable bequest in their will, is there an issue that you're really passionate about? Suddenly it jumps up to 17%. So it's a bit right. like there are ways to switch on our acorn brains, our long-term right. thinking capacity. We're not just naturally egoistic, self-interested, mm -hmm. uh, short now creatures. We also have this other part to us, but the institutions around us aren't directed towards expanding that. Yeah, that's actually a great segue to the next topic, which is legacy mindset. Um, there's a lot in that section of the book, but I think one thing that stood out to me, and you've kind of hinted at it here, is how the remembrance of death increases people's willingness to invest in the future. And I found this super interesting. It, it seems like today we're reminded of death in very sensational ways, right? Through news, through activism, uh, at the same time that we've kind of removed the daily experience of death from our societies, right? We've shunted it away in various institutions. It seems like the way that we talk about and experience death in our society shortens time horizons, right? It's, it's, it, it's all in this very quick news cycle. Um, that seems pretty unhealthy. So what is a better way to think about and remind ourselves of death in our society, have this so memento mori type of remembrance? Yeah, I think death is very fundamental to long-term thinking. It's probably one of the greatest assets of humankind when it comes to the long-term, the fact that we are not here forever. Because basically what half a century of psychology research have showed us is that when human beings tend to reach around midlife, you know, 35 to 50, they start thinking about how they're going to be remembered when they're gone. I mean, the ancient Greeks were doing this too. You know, how do we keep the fire of our own lives still burning? What kind of legacy are we going to leave? But the thing about legacy is that we tend to express our legacies in very different ways. So you've got an egotistical mm -hmm. form of legacy, like a Russian oligarch who wants a wing of an art gallery or a football stadium named after them. That's how they're going to achieve immortality. A bit like Alexander the Great wanted statues of himself all over his empire. A second kind of legacy is really a familial kind of legacy, wanting to pass on stuff to our kids. You know, I've got kids. I want to do that pass on you know, the home I live in or pass on culture and tradition or religion. But I think we're going to be good ancestors, which is really what it's all about for me is we need a much more universal sense of connection with the strangers of the future who we will never meet. And that requires thinking about what our legacy is going to be. But in order to do that, we also have to look at the legacies that we've inherited from the past, because in some ways we have inherited very positive legacies from those who created the, the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, who made medical discoveries we still benefit from, who built the cities we still live in. But we're also the inheritors of very destructive legacies too. Legacies of slavery, slavery and colonialism um, and racism, creating deep inequities that must now be repaired. You know, legacies of economies that are structurally addicted to fossil fuels and endless growth that we must now transform. So there's a legacy question 
there. It's a bit like the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you should have them, as you'd have them do unto you. We can do an intertemporal version of that. Do unto future generations how you'd want past generations to have treated you. And that's a kind of question we can ask ourselves on a daily basis in a way. Mm -hmm. Have I been practicing that? Have I been practicing being a good ancestor when I'm booking my Caribbean holiday requiring lots of fossil fuels to get there? Or am I being a good ancestor when I, you know, start this kind of business or that kind of business, whatever it happens to be? These are, you right. know, basic existential questions we can ask ourselves. And so death is kind of a check uh, of this, you would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can do other little thought experiments. One I like, I call the dinner party of the afterlife. So imagine you're dead, right? And um, not just lying in the coffin, but you imagine you're dead and you go to a dinner party in the afterlife and there in the room are all the other yous who you might have been if you had made Ooh. different choices. You know, the you who actually studied really hard for your exams and became a veterinary scientist, this was your dream. The you who became an alcoholic, the you who didn't bother to make their marriage work and it fell apart. The you who, you know, uh, got better after a, a near brush of death with cancer. And you can mm -hmm. look around at those different selves and ask yourselves, are there any of these other me's I'd like to be or become? And that kind of thought experiment where you're kind of projecting yourself to the end of your life is one of the ways of trying to think about death uh, in a way that Tolstoy was doing when he wrote The, the Death of Ivan Illich. Speaking of kind of the result, which is this sort of long-term thinking, which you call in the book cathedral thinking. You discuss in particular a church in Southwest Germany in which the construction began in 1377 with slow crowdfunding by the locals that continued all the way up until its completion in 1890. That's over 500 years. What do you think enabled this community to actually keep their intergenerational mindset for that long? Did it become just a tradition over time or were there particular social institutions that actually managed to survive and coordinate for that long? Right, so you're talking there about Almminster, Lutheran Church in Southwest Germany. I wish I could interview all those people generation after right. generation who committed to this. I mean, clearly they must have committed to it partly out of a sense of sort of spiritual drive is I'm gonna do this for the glory of God. I'm going to start building this church, even though it's not going to be finished in my own lifetime. I'm sure some of it was just dogged determination. And I think there's something about religious institutions. I mean, like the Catholic Church, too. It's been around for a couple of thousand years. So therefore, I can understand why Antonio Gaudi uh, started uh, building the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona in the 1880s, because there's a pretty good chance that that that. Mm you know, his institution, the Catholic Church, would still be around for decades, centuries, even longer. So there's something yeah, about- still command high investment from uh, devotees. Like people will actually keep on, even in difficult times, investing in the future for those kinds of institutions uh, in ways that are like pretty rare for anything else. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think there's something about people, about there's a kind of beauty in leaving- a legacy, going back to that idea of legacy. And I think cathedral thinking is partly driven by that to know that you've been part of something bigger than yourself. And there's a kind of a memorial, not just your own tombstone, but in that case, a giant church. And I kind of like the way that um, those early medieval church builders, you know, don't have their names written all over their churches, but their kind of blood, sweat and tears are, are there in the brickwork 
uh, in yeah. some, sometimes their bodies too, right? I this is I've always said one of the things we need more of in North America is just burying people in the walls of uh, churches and other buildings again. I, I think there really is something, you know, touching on your the, the last topic we discussed when you actually are surrounded by your physical uh, ancestors, the ancestors of your community, you are going to feel yourself, you know, one day I will be there as well, right? Very strong sense of memento mori. And I can definitely see that lasting on this scale of time. In this, yeah. In this and, you know, way. medieval churches, of course, had dancing skeletons, you know, painted on the walls, frescoes, the dance macabre, the memento mori, as you, right. as you say, and we've lost that connection with death. And I mean, there's a lot of interesting thinking in other cultures about this. So, you know, Buddhist thinking of ideas mm -hmm. of impermanence, um, that we're constantly, you know, being uh, born and dying or every flower, you know, is, is, is here for a day and then disappears. And, and so are we too. That is a way of kind of transcending the moment by an immersion in the now, we kind of transcend time to something larger. Mm -hmm. Is there any example of cathedral thinking today that is beginning or that is ongoing now that you can think of? Or are we kind of set to looking at these previous things? Well, uh, you know, a bit earlier, I mentioned the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona, a giant church which is being started in the 1880s. It's still being built now. It'll probably be finished in about 10 years' time. Um, I think that's a, a good example of literally a kind of cathedral thinking that's going mm. on. But I think you can look, for example, at um, some of the nuclear fusion scientific laboratories. So there's the uh, ITER, I-T-E-R project in France. They've been working on cross-European countries and scientists for about 30 years. And who knows whether they'll be able to create their dream of nuclear fusion. And But those scientific mm. projects are very much ongoing. And then there are projects which we know have been designed for a long time. So, for example, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is mm. collecting millions of seeds in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle that's designed to last a thousand years. Uh, so that's preserving the world's plant biodiversity. Now, it didn't take very long to build the, the bunker itself, but it was designed for the long term. So in a way, it's a kind of a cathedral thinking project, which isn't a cathedral thinking project in the sense of taking a long time to build, but um, its design spec has that long vision inside it. One of the topics that comes up a lot for you throughout this book is the climate crisis. In the examples you've given, right, it seems like the institutions that are carrying out these forms of cathedral thinking are very tight knit, very well aligned and coordinated, often quite small uh, in terms of their working groups. For something on the scale of a climate crisis um, or, or, you know, any of the other social crises, pandemic, for example, do you think it's actually possible for these larger institutions to have this kind of thinking? Like, are you confident that they can regain this in time to actually deal with some of these topics? Or I'm not confident crises? at all, actually. I'm not confident at all, but I do believe it's possible. I mean, right. the Catholic Church is not a small institution. Um, you know, that's one of those ones which have been behind the cathedral thinking, not the only one. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's large and it has the potential. Actually, this is a really interesting example, the way that Pope Francis has started talking about intergenerational solidarity, our obligations right. to future generations, um, trying to mobilize, not saying successfully at all, you know, the one or two billion Catholics in the world, however many there are. The question is whether our existing institutions 
can also, you know, secular institutions, for instance, take that long-term vision. And we don't see a lot of it around. We certainly don't see it from national governments. We see it from some governments. So um, Norway, for example, has a sovereign wealth fund where they're uh, ironically hiding away all of their earnings from their fossil fuel industry, from gas and oil, uh, and saving it for future generations. Um, there's a couple of trillion dollars in the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and it's earmarked for long-term investment in future Norwegians' education and healthcare and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at international institutions like the UN, you know they don't have the clout, they don't have the power to take that long view. And there's a really fascinating book, which has just come out by Kim Stanley Robinson, sci-fi writer, of course, called The Ministry for the Future, his new book. And mm -hmm. it is all about that question of whether we can create the institutions to think for the long term. I hugely recommend this book. It's very exciting. And, you know, a lot of his books are sent, set, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ahead. This one's set about five years from now. It starts roughly in 2025 and goes forward over the next 20 years or so, looking at whether we can actually tackle the climate crisis. Um, and he's got a very interesting take on it. You know, he thinks, you know, on some level, nations have failed and will be unable to do it. Um, but he does have hope in social movements, in the ecological movement, and even, and this is a really contro controversial one, in this novel, there are some people who take up arms, you know, um, to fight the climate battle, you know, to bring, you know, to blow up coal-fired power factories and so on. It comes to that in the same way, of like course, that in the, 19, in the 1950s in South Africa, the African National Congress, the ANC, they shifted to guerrilla warfare because all legal means had failed. And Nelson Mandela was behind that. You know, he was a guerrilla mm -hmm. fighter. So these are really interesting uh, and challenging questions about what it might take to take action. So you say in the book that the future is becoming more unknowable. I mean, especially with the acceleration of society that we've been, that we talked about right at the beginning as well. It's easier to predict 1050 AD from 1020 than 2050 from 2020. So how can we do long-term forecasting? How can we transform uh, to sort of a longer perception of what's, what's now and what matters when the future is becoming more unknowable? That's one of the crunch questions, of course, of all strategic foresight and forecasting. And in fact, you know, in a way, on the one hand, so much of the future is unknowable. I mean, AI, when are the machines going to take over? Will we be in Blade Runner 2049 in 2049 or later or <laughs> earlier? Or who knows? But on the other hand, I think the future is extremely knowable in a very fundamental sense, which comes back to the ecological crisis. We know now about the great acceleration that alongside economic growth has come upward swinging curves of CO2 emissions and ocean acidification and soil degradation and deforestation. We know we are blowing outside safe planetary boundaries, uh, as they're called. And we don't know exactly you know, how much the sea levels are going to rise by 2100 or how much global heating is going to go up by 2100. But we've got a pretty good idea of roughly what's going to happen. We know that we are not living within the boundaries of the one and only planet we know that sustains life. Now, that is very clear future that's out there. It's very clear what we need to do. Um, so I think there's a, there's a kind of huge knowability about the future, which I find when I'm talking to people from the um, futures and foresight community, they're constantly talking about the language of uncertainty. 
But actually, I think right. there is much more uncertainty there than we think. Because in a way, when you talk about uncertainty, it can be a, a, a way into apathy. Like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. So right, I'm only right. going to react to the future when it hits me in the present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a way you can kind of forecast out. Maybe you don't know the details, but you can often bound these very fundamental trends or very fundamental things. Um, and, and if you focus on those fundamentals, you can often project out much further than you can just by looking at, you know, what's the latest trend this year or this decade or whatever, but just look at what are the overall trends that seem to be the big underlying important issues. Yeah. Can I just say one, one little thing there, you know, one thing we do know about the future is that we'll need air to breathe and water to drink and right. things like that, you know, so those sets <laughs> very, very clear ground. No. Yeah. It, it seems like one of the, the fun, the things that we like about the future, about modernity, right, is the dynamism. And the city is obviously very synonymous with all, all of these concepts. And, you know, you mentioned in the book how there are these UN projections. Uh, we'll be getting to around two-thirds of the population living in these clusters of cities or megacities. To what degree do you think that cities shred that kind of intergenerational thinking? Like, are, are they a major contributor to the future being so unknowable and so a sense that we really can't plan for it? That's a fascinating question. I mean, I think when I think about cities, that's where I really get hopeful, actually. Because when I look at cities through history, they have been very good at taking the long view as sort of forms of social technology. Go back to the, you know, the first big Roman cities, they were putting in place sanitation and water infrastructure and all this sort of stuff, which was kind of intergenerational infrastructure. And cities are very good at dealing with mixing people together from lots of different backgrounds. They're good at making sure they don't get flooded. This is all a kind of a long-term mentality. Of course, at the same time, cities have been the sites of modernity in terms of economic modernity. So they are responsible for the fossil fuels and all sorts of other kinds of ecological degradation, which we uh, have inherited and which at the moment we're passing on to the next generation. But, you know, when you look, for example, at the way cities have responded in the last few years to long-term challenges, I think there's, a, and short-term ones, there's a lot to learn from. So just think of when Donald Trump uh, withdrew from the Paris Accord on climate accord in 2017. Well, he was defied by 279 US city mayors who said, no, we're going to stick to the Paris Accord of staying of staying below 1.5 degrees. Those mayors represented mm. one in five Americans, tens of millions of people from cities like Miami and Boston. So there are cities really taking the lead. And in a way, I'd like to see a return to the Renaissance city state, mm. you know, like Florence or, or Pisa, you know, in the 14th, 15th century, which they had all their problems. You know, they were fighting each other all the time, constantly at war. Um, but they were trying to almost live within their own bioregions. And I'd like to see that now. And I'd like to see interdependent networks of cities emerging, has, as have been emerging, like something called the C40, which brings together 90 cities uh, committed to climate change. So, and just actually on the short-term responses of cities or taking the long view from short-term crises, look at the response of some cities to COVID-19. Paris, for example, closes the roads and turns them into parks and cycleways. Amsterdam, for example, adopts the donor economics model of the British economist Kate Rayworth, which is all about moving to a post-growth society, circular economy, keeping down carbon emissions, keeping down material waste. 
This is long-term vision coming out of a crisis and cities are really doing it. Mm -hmm. So we'll be moving on to Q&A shortly, but we have one final question uh, for this part of the discussion. Uh, and this has to do with your final topic. So we've just discussed holistic forecasting and now transcendent goals is the last of this um, broad overview. So you propose sustainable one planet thriving essentially as the appropriate telos for humanity right now. And so my sense is uh, opposed to more expansionary ideas um, like progress, uh, perhaps, you know, these sort of interplanetary initiatives, uh, getting humans into space. When we achieve mastery and a kind of holistic stewardship over our planet, do you think there's a danger that that can become an ideal of stagnation? Uh, like kind of, if we're kind of single planet focused, uh, can that be reconciled with a longer term and more expansionist view of progress? I think the complete opposite. In fact, you know, I think that if we learn to live within the boundaries of this one planet we know that sustains life, um, which I think is has to be our ultimate goal. And let me just say that you can't have long-term thinking without a goal because long-term thinking can mm, go towards right. narrow and self-serving ends. There's a former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, who once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Right. Hitler wanted an a thousand year Reich. So you need to have a goal or a telos as the ancient Greeks called it. Now, the idea of living within one, the boundaries of one planet that is the basis for creativity and dynamism. We need boundaries. Humans thrive within boundaries. Just think that Mozart only operated on a five octave piano, Jimi Hendrix on a six string guitar, Serena Williams within the boundaries of the tram lines on a tennis court, right? There's nothing stagnant, stagnant about being able to live on one planet. That's just the basis of what we need for life. Out of that can come the novels of Kim Stanley Robinson, music, creativity, art, poetry, science, whatever you like. So I definitely don't think this is about stagnation. I mean, I think it's quite the opposite. It's, you know, when our societies are constrained by uh, the huge problems we're creating for ourselves, you know, for example, the climate crisis and other threats, that we end up becoming smaller in ourselves. You know, we end up um, just being worried about our own security. We're pulling up the drawbridge. We are not contributing to human culture. So we need that broader vision of living within the boundaries of the planet, not using 1.6 planet Earths as we currently do. Once we do that, that's when the real dynamism is going to happen. Hmm. I, I can see people, um, you know, at the thought that humans do not leave Earth feeling a crushing sense of disappointment. Like, you know, what do you sort of say to people who are very, you know, uh, there is a long mythos uh, in America and across the Western world, across the world, really, right, of this interplanetary uh, ideal. Like, what do you see that as, as representing? And like, do you think that it can be, you know, that energy can be reconciled? I, I know you sort of said the, the, real, the, the real dynamism will happen in, in one world. Uh, but well, you know, look, I don't think Leonardo there? da Vinci needed the dream of going to Mars to have an exciting and creative life, you know, full of exploration and creativity and interest. You know, I don't think we need that idea of an interplanetary world. I think there's a, you know, I love the writing of Carl Sagan, for example. He's very poetic about the idea of our ultimate destiny being to people other worlds and so on. And the, the, the tree of immortality in Chinese culture grew on the moon. So let's go and colonize all those other planets. But I think that, you know, we have so much within us here and now. What's this yearning 
we have to get off this planet. It seems kind of crazy to me. I mean, I just spent the morning with my kids and that's a, you know, all about the human relationship. We are social beings. What really matters to us ultimately when it comes down to it is society, is community. And if we let allow that to break down by our um, dumping of ecological degradation and technological risk on future generations, we're not going to be left with the relationships and community that make life truly meaningful. And in fact, what just came to mind as I was speaking then was I once met this astronaut. Um, I spent the afternoon with him and, you know, we were talking about, you know, what the earth, you know, looks like from space and isn't that extraordinary and so on. He said, well, the really interesting thing is when you're in the inter international space station, as he was, he said, I look the other way and you know what I saw? Nothing, absolutely mm. nothing. You know, we are Fair not enough. going to, uh, it's very unlikely we are going to conquer all those other planets out there. Space is just too damn big. It's too damn hard. Let's try and live on this one planet. And that was an astronaut. Well, that wraps up the first half of our salon this week. Uh, so next we're gonna be taking questions from the live audience of Palladium members. Uh, so this, this next half of our discussion is available to subscribers and Palladium members only. To become a member and get invited to our upcoming salons, please visit us at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Uh, you can also subscribe to Palladium Magazine on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at Palladium Mag. Uh, so thanks for joining us for part one of our discussion with uh, Roman Krisnerink. Roman's book again, for the audience listening in, is The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking, and is available in the U.S. on November 3rd of this year.